am I? My name is Jacqueline Downs. Um, I go by Jackie um, to the rest of the world. And I am the Arts Council Director for the City of Baltimore. And I work at OPA, the Baltimore Office of Promotion and the Arts. Are you from Baltimore? I am not. I am from New York. My father is a Baltimorean, so Baltimore is in my blood. This is where I spent my summers growing up. Most kids went to Disney World. We came to the East Side, and <laughs> I loved it, you know? So um, I have a ton of family here, a lot of roots, and um, I love Charm City. I love it. What neighborhood did you live uh, at in, uh, you said you're from Queens, right? Yes, Hollis, Hollis, Queens. Oh, uh, okay. I'm assuming my mom's from Queens as well. She grew up in Jackson Heights. Oh, okay, cool. I know Jackson Heights very well, yeah. I used to live in Left Rock City um, for all y'all New Yorkers out there. And then um, when I was eight, we moved to St. Albans slash Hollis. And I actually grew up in the mecca of all the, the hip hop greats, like a block up from Jay and Run. And then a block behind me was LL Cool J. Um, and then four blocks up was like Black Rock and Ron. And then it was just what it was, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it was just, it was very cool growing up in the late, late eighties, nineties. Um, it was a fun time, it was a fun time. Tell me more about that. Do you have uh, siblings or were you an only child? What was it like growing up in that era? Yeah, so it was a cool, very, it was a very cool, um, eclectic type of era. Um, I'm the youngest of two. Um, my parents were married almost 50 years, and I come from a very large Christian family. You know, so church was like the staple of our everything. Um, but it was just a fun time. It was a time where, you know, I, I'm not going to say we didn't have to lock our doors because we definitely did. But it was a time where we stayed out and played in the streets. You know, when the street light came on, you definitely had to go in the house. But it was definitely an era where um, community and family was ever very much so felt. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, I felt more community growing up. I felt like if I did something on my block, um, someone was going to tell my mama. Um, it was more accountability. And it was just a, a, a time when people were just free to have fun. I felt like a kid. I enjoyed myself. You know, I learned from people. We made mistakes, but it was okay. Um, I was definitely an artist. I'm a com I come from a family of singers and songwriters and producers. So that was always in my blood. I went to the performing arts high school, the original, I don't know if you're old enough to know fame, the fame school. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, when I say that reference, sometimes people are like, okay. And I'm like, yeah, I'm old. <laughs> I went to the original fame school, LaGuardia um, High School Music and Performing Arts. Um, I am a singer and a, and a writer as well. So I've always been performing. That was just always my thing. So I've, I grew up in a, in a space where performance was encouraged, art was encouraged, and around a bunch of teenagers who were always striving for their passion. So most of my friends now are on Broadway, in Hollywood, you know, living their dream, doing their thing, and that's just what it is. So art has always been a huge part of my upbringing and my, um, my pastime and my professional and personal life. Based off of the, the way that you're describing your childhood and everything, it seems like, like one thing just kind of fed into the other. Like you come from a family of uh, artists and performers, and mm -hmm. you also come from a large Christian family. So I'm sure, no doubt, a lot of the singing, you know, musical instruments and, and, and production went into church. Like, did you have family yeah. members that were in the, the choir or, or like a choir? Absolutely. Director? Like, oh, absolutely. Like we were, I, we were the choir. All my cousins... <laughs> We were the choir. My aunts were the, the musicians, the choir directors. We were the directors of the junior choir. Um, I have, you know, family members who sing with like notable and nationally recognized um, gospel artists now. Touring has just been a part of family life. Like, you know, that's just what, this is what I've seen. So um, 
Yeah, it was it was ministry because I have a lot of ministers in my family as well, but it was also production. So seeing that combination throughout my life, it was only natural that it was going to be a part of whatever I was going to ultimately end up doing. But yeah, in the choir, all that stuff, you did it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just kind of a no brainer that you would go to the performing arts school or did you have to convince your parents to let you go? You know, what's so funny. That's a really good question. I did not have to convince my parents because my sister went first and she had to convince them first. So LaGuardia High School is in Manhattan. We lived in Queens, right? I, I would say we grew up kind of sheltered. Parents knew we were at all times, no boys. Like it was just very, you know, imagine what it was. I can sing. My sister can sing. She is a phenomenal singer. And she's been knowing, she knew since she was born that she was a singer. We all knew it was pretty obvious. And she wanted to audition to go to the school. And my, my mother was like, I don't know. But one of my aunts, who is like the producer of the family, who's been on tour, she really convinced my, her sister and said, look, she's talented. She needs to go. My sister went, who's two years older than me. She was already in the school. I wanted to go but I wanted to go for drama because I wanted to be an actress my whole life. I thought I was going to be an actress or be on, on TV. I auditioned for drama and vocal two years later, got a call back for drama, got in for vocal. I was, I thought I was going to be, that was it. I was like, I'm going to go to theater and do Broadway. And they were like, nah, you got a call back, but I didn't get in. I was a vocal major. And by the time my sister was a sophomore, my parents were already comfortable with the idea for traveling on a train, going to the city. Um, so I just followed her and I, I followed in her footsteps and just, and did it. That made it much easier. Thanks, Nick. Shout out to my sis. <laughs> <laughs> What's the age difference for uh, you and your sister? Two years. So she's two years older than me. So she was a rising, she was a junior and I was a freshman. So I came into a high school where she was an already established, very popular, amazing singer. And for me, that was hard because again, like I said, I can sing, but I was not her. She was a standout star. And I was like, I have to make my own name, you know, for myself. And, and I have to be authentic to, to who I am. And I just went another way. And for me, it was through academics. And for me, it was through um, being SGA president, being a part of different clubs and organizations, the Black Alliance Club, like organizing that. So I really learned how to distinguish and find my own voice. And in a family like mine, it's hard because everyone has such huge talents. And um, it's easy to say, you're going to follow in the footsteps of, but no, I knew... I'm going to do something significant. It's just not going to be that, but I had to figure out how I was going to do it. And that really set me up for a life of, um, in the arts, but also advocating, you know, I went through high school. I wasn't the known as the singer, but I was senior class president, you know, and I went to college. I went to HBCU, Johnson C. Smith university in Charlotte, North Carolina, very small HBCU. Um, but I was homecoming queen, you know, campus ambassador, always running for stuff, always doing things. And I knew that that was a part of my makeup. And I just got really comfortable in that. So I'm like, yeah, this, this is kind of who I am. You were always striving for a position that would not only allow you to be creative, uh, but at the same time, be an advocate and be a voice for the community that you were a part of. For sure. It's, it's, it's been ingrained from family, but also... In my trajectory, it's pretty interesting. I, I thought we plan out our lives and say we're going to do X and then we get into life and then <laughs> God says, okay, I'll let you think that. And then as you travel and navigate, you really realize what your purpose is. And I'm definitely a mission-driven person. I, I can only do things that I believe in. I can only be attached to projects that are soul ties for me. And at one point in time, it really was 
I used to work in television news. I graduated college and I was like, I'm going to be a news producer, TV reporter, because I like to talk. I'm nosy. Um, I was really inspired by a fifth grade teacher who said to me in the fifth grade, um, you write well. I've never heard that before in my life. No one has ever told me that. But she was like, you write well. You should be a writer. Never thought that writers could make money. It was never, you know, lawyer, doctor, singer, performer, mm-hmm. writer. And that was a seed that was planted. And long story short, I ended up producing television news and um, I hated it. I went to school for it and I absolutely hated it. I hated the, the style of writing. I hated the, the five people shot two dead every day. I couldn't be as creative as I wanted to be. I was in North Carolina. There was some racism at my station that I wasn't quite ready to handle um, at 21 years old. I was a producer and folk didn't like listening to me. So um, all of that to say, I ended up teaching and teaching the arts, teaching theater arts, giving the experience I had in high school to underserved youth in Charlotte. And I loved that. I loved exposing these young people to the idea that their story is amazing. Your, your mom, you know, I, I was, it was amazing. So I did that for quite some time, but it was still kind of something was nagging at me. And then I went to grad school at Howard and I realized that um, my medium of writing is film. I was pretty successful, you know, I thesis filmed it well. Um, it was accepted into like the Ken short film corner. I went to France, like I was doing things. I was supposed to be Ava before Ava came out. Like <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna be this black conscious filmmaker. I'm gonna do X, Y, and Z. Um, of course life happens, you know, you graduate, you find love, you get married, you have children, you have, you know, things happen and your, your course all alters a bit, but I found myself again in the advocacy spot with the arts, with young people. And I just been doing that for a long time. So for me, I think I, I tried to decide, I tried to say, I'm going to be an arts educator, then an arts administrator because I want to change policy and make laws. Then I love working with artists because I am one and I want to advocate. So I was trying to like define one lane and then I finally stopped and said, I'm not going to decide one thing. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to be the artist. I'm going to be the advocate. I'm going to be the administrator. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I don't have to choose one, you know? And I think a lot of times, oftentimes women, especially, um, we feel we have to make choices. You know, I watch my male counterparts from Howard who are killing the game right now. Um, Shout out to all of them in LA, in Atlanta, doing their thing. The women, we have made alternate choices. We, We got married and we had kids. We still are passionate people, but we had to do things differently. And then sometimes you feel like you have to just not pursue your thing but um, I'm still pursuing it, but I also know that advocacy and helping communities, especially communities of color in this lane of arts is what I wanna do. This is who I am. And so I, I settled here about two years ago after working in DC for 10 years in a variety of different capacities. Um, this is it. I love what I'm doing now. I love this lane. I love Baltimore. The town here is sick. It is amazing. Um, so many just multifaceted um, artists who can do so many different things. I love it. So being in the space that I, the seat that I sit, I find it a privilege. I don't, I don't take it lightly. And I love doing what I'm, what I'm doing for the Baltimore artist community and for arts organizations here as well. From a, a child um, and you wanted to be like a, you want to be an actress, you wanted to be somebody who working in entertainment and mm-hmm. um when you get to college and you finish college, you're working in television news. And incidentally, uh, I worked in new, I worked in news radio and I worked in, um, I worked in DC for a little bit. So I know oh, all too cool. well what you're talking about. Uh, yes. If it bleeds, it leads. And yes. 
the uh the just the idea and the like this like this time honored tradition of sitting there and watching people who are half as talented do twice as somehow and you're just like I, like I'm, I'm just kind of confused here. I don't really understand how this is all, all working. Um, but in all of those pivots, and, and also you know pivoting away from television news to to teaching and then arts administration, uh, you always talk about the choices that you had to make. Even though every time you pivoted, you pivoted to something that you wanted to do. Did yeah. a small part of you want to just kind of keep carrying on with your dream? Or were you like, I just need to be more pragmatic. And even though that this is not exactly what I wanted since I was a child, this is something that fulfills me f- for now. Like, how, how, how was that like for you? That's a really good, that's a really, really great, great way to phrase it because that's exactly what I did. At, at the core of who I am, I'm an artist. Like I, I can relate so well to artists and artistry in that process, but I'm a very practical person, right? I was raised by two people who I had city jobs for over 30 years and retired and have good pensions. And that's what they told me and taught me to do. Right. So when I told my father, especially I was going to grad school to pursue film, <laughs> he was like, what is <laughs> why? So yeah, I pivoted and I had a, a professor tell me at one time, she said, Jackie, if you, you a good writer now in college. And it was always teachers that put this nugget in me, black women too. You can write well, but if you hone your craft and your skill, you will always have a job. Just know it. I was 19. She said, you will always have a job. I don't care what industry it is, what it is you do. You love to write. It's clear. You will always have a job if you do that. So I kept that with me. So although I would love to be um, shooting independent films, that's what I want to do. That's my ultimate thing. I could, if I could do that all day, I'd be totally happy. Um, but I can't do that right now for a myriad of reasons. I am satisfied because I'm still pursuing a passion of mine. So yeah, there's a part of me that's like, oh, this that would be great if I could do X. And I'm not ruling it out. I'm not saying I'm never gonna pursue it. I just know I can't all have it all at one time. So th- in this season of my life, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I believe that that's been true for every step of the way, whether I knew it or not, whether I foresaw it coming or not. If I, When I was working in TV, you couldn't tell me I wasn't gonna be on CNN in five years. Right. So but in five years later, you couldn't tell me I wasn't going to be at Howard University. You know what I mean? So it's like I I believe in seasons and I believe they're all working together. Things are working together, you know, for my good and, and to really so I can make a meaningful impact. So I try not to dwell on what I'm not getting out of my passions. Um, I think they're going to line up one day eventually, if that makes any sense. You know, like I don't have it all right this second, but I feel I feel like I'm going to eventually get to do what I want to do, <laughs> yeah. what I want to do, you know? I, I, that, com- that makes complete sense to me. And what I think is interesting and I think really benefited you and like you used to your advantage is just your detailed understanding of timing and pragmatism, like you said. Uh, so I'm 31 years old. I've been out of college for a while. When I was in college, you know, life was relatively easy my only job right. was to like finish school and not right. mess up um but as you get older and as you do more things like you said that when life happens um you just have to make those certain decisions but i think it's so interesting that throughout all these decisions that you made you're like i could i could still do what i want to do whenever i just have to the timing just has to be right so i think mm-hmm. that that is a great way to um, look at it and it, it makes um makes complete sense 
So let's talk about Jackie in the now. Let's talk about your current position at Vopa. Can you can you tell us more about it? Yeah, I've been here now two years. And as the Arts Council Director, um, it's my responsibility to provide support resources, technical support um, to arts organizations and individuals in the city. And we do that by way of grant making. Um, we um, are a grant funding, grant producing organization. We also provide technical supports. Um, we're mostly known for... Um, Artscape and Light City and BookFest, that's what BOPA is known for, but um, there's an amazing Arts Council staff that predates me that really does some amazing and outstanding work within the Baltimore arts communities, really being the, a, a voice for the community and a liaison to help represent, the to protect the artists um, and to really provide them opportunities. You know, so I don't, again, I, I don't take this position Lightly, um, we do a, a ton of stuff, <laughs> a lot of things right now, and it's just fun. It's 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 hard work. You know, we make hard decisions. We process a lot of things all the time. You know, as a team, are we making the right decisions? Are we being fully rep representative and reflective of Baltimore City? Um, it's just it's a good it's a good job. You know, it's and it's good work to do, especially in a time where um, we're we're having this cultural, racial reckoning, awakening in this country, um, every industry is affected. I really love the fact that all eyes now are on the arts and with, with equal representation and voice and not just you know paying the artists to do the work, but having them at the table to make the decisions about a project. That to me is real change and impact and we're trying to make that happen now. That touches on a question that I'm gonna have for you in a little bit. So we'll definitely come back to that. Something that uh, I also wanna ask you, so you've been in Baltimore or have you been in Baltimore for two years or have you just been at BOPA for two years? I've been at BOPA for two years. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then how long have you been in Baltimore for? So living in Baltimore, I live outside of Baltimore. Um, okay. Son who's uh, eight, he's in school, so I'm in Howard County, but I'm in, I'm in, I work in Baltimore. Working in Baltimore versus working in the Washington DC art scene, what are the major cultural differences? Because again, as somebody who worked in news media, I understand mm -hmm. that in any given year, Washington DC is either a number five or number six media market. Baltimore right. is consistently like 25th or 26th, which is right. not, you know, a bad thing. It, it, right. is what it is. So what are like some similarities and differences that you see? And also what are some things that DC gets right that Baltimore could learn from and vice versa? That is a really interesting question. So, and so I think for me, how do I explain this? And I'll try to tell me if it's not making sense and I'll try to elaborate again. So Baltimore and DC both have their unique powers, right? And I think in DC, um, the power that DC has is intellectual capital. It's not wealth, right? It's an intellectual hub. And I find that there, it's, it, it wins or it does well there because people there all speak the same language. They, they speak that political language. They all may have the same agenda that they wanna move forward and they know how to do it in Washington, DC. Right. Baltimore's strength to me is really the culture. Like this is a this is a city, but I think it really is a big community. It feels so much more homey and personal than Washington, D.C. And they're so close, but they're so different. And understand and, and, and even how you even how I do business here, I had to really readjust because it's so different from how it's done in Washington, D.C. 
uh, emails versus phone calls. You got to call people here in Baltimore. You have to know them. You have to get to know them. They have to get to know you. In DC, we could email for a year before we even knew each other and do like 10 different transactions. And that's cool. Baltimore feels culturally rich. DC feels intellectually wealthy. Does that make sense? It does make sense, but that also presents me with another question. Okay. Why is it, why do we find it so difficult for the two to collaborate with one another? I have been trying to figure that out for a long time. There's this, for me, and, and this is as an outsider looking in, I would say Baltimore is like a family and they don't like outsiders, <laughs> right? I feel like it's very much so like, this is who we are. They have their traditions. They have their culture. You know, my father is over 70 and I tell him I met somebody. The first thing he asked me is, where, where they go to school? And he's talking about high school. <laughs> they are about their high schools. They're not playing games. You know, he went to city and he will talk about somebody who went to poly <laughs> all day long. Yeah. DC, I feel, is a more transient city. So people are coming to Washington, DC, right? They're coming from college. They're coming to relocate. They're coming for a job. So I feel like that also changes the culture of the city. So they're not really tied to anything historical or old. The only thing, the only old ties there are the, the political avenues, but I feel like it's that's why it's not as connected. So I think as Baltimore is like this wall of, we are Baltimore and we have the history to prove it, DC is not as tied historically so it makes it hard for them to connect to how Baltimore is communicating is that if that makes any sense that's just how I feel I, I've seen that on a personal level and on a professional level everybody knows everyone here in Baltimore this one knows that one because she used to work here and that used to be her mentor and that was her cousin and her auntie at the street knows his mother my father went to school with Kirk Schmoke if I hear that again the previous mayor of Baltimore City that was his friend like it's a very personalized relationship from personal to political here DC is not like that, you know, because that person just came from California. What did you do there? Oh, it's that kind of, I want to move forward. They have this relationship and that business tie, or they can help advance my career. That's how I feel DC operates. Baltimore's not like that. If they like you, they like you. I know people who have not, they've never left their neighborhood, you know, and that's true of people in DC too, because I used to do a lot of work in Southeast DC. So I'm not coming up for Baltimore in that, in that regard. But I do know a lot of folk who don't. I, I talk about, have you ever been to Light City? Have you ever been to this? Or I think of events or Bookfest. No, I don't go over there. Why? It's your city, you know? Um, and that, that's layered. That's a layered response because there could be a lot of things that cause a person to feel like they're not welcome. So that's a whole nother conversation as well. But people like what they like. They like what they know and they like the familiar. And I feel like Baltimore operates more like that than DC. This was your history. This was your past. You did it like this. So this is how I think you're always going to do it. That's not always true, you know? So I would say less inflexible in that regard versus DC because DC, you're just trying to go. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be there for more than five to seven years anyway because you have a plan and a timeline to go X. So that's just been my experience professionally. Getting back to something that you mentioned before, just about arts and arts programming and being an advocate. In the last 20 years, there's been such a huge focus on STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, and it's really been at the expense of the arts. Uh, I know that when I was in elementary school and I think in middle school, uh, we had um, art classes and I don't mm -hmm. even know if those are a thing anymore. Um, but during this pandemic, 
we've all had to stay inside. We've all been on lockdown and we've turned to artists for solace, you know, podcasts, mm -hmm. Netflix, uh, movies, uh, books, even, um, you know, book sales have gone up since the pandemic. Do you think that the pandemic has reinvigorated the public's appetite for meaningful arts programming in Baltimore? I do. Um, I think it's repurposed and it's refocused and it shed a light on what was not happening. You know, um, I was blessed to go to an arts school, right? And so where art was a part of the regular curriculum, we got, we had two degrees, actually diplomas, a regular diploma and an arts diploma. You had to finish that. And for kids nowadays, especially, um, you know, in Baltimore City, that's just not readily available, I think that people are hungry for it. I think that people are hungry for it because people need outlets to express themselves and to just have fun. Um, so I'm, I'm happy, not, not happy this pandemic happened, but it really did re reframe some things and expose what was not happening and what young people don't have access to. STEM is important. I think STEAM is even more important with the A, STEAM. Adding that arts component in there, you cannot have an education refocus or repurpose without including the arts. We need it. Young people need it to grow and to develop soft skills, hard skills, social emotional skills. And arts can help in every area of your life. You know, and there are organizations right now that we're working with who are doing amazing things. You know, LTYC, you know, led by Dana Carr, she's doing amazing things with young people. Um, Shrena Christmas with Muse360, she's also continuing to do arts programming. So there are organizations, um, young audiences, arts every day, working on um, just a variety of different things. And people are really knowing that young people still need support. So I'm glad that Baltimore City does have resources and organizations who are committed and focused solely to helping young people during this time. But it's very, it's crucial. We need, we need them. We need to keep funding them and we need more of them to support young people in Baltimore City. Absolutely. Uh, me, as a podcaster, I want to talk a little bit more about podcasting um, specifically. Over the last mm -hmm. few years, it's just exploded in popularity and it's just turned into a billion dollar industry. And, and I, I could just be, you know, a little biased or have a maybe a small chip on my shoulder but when it comes to grant season I feel like podcasting kind of receives more of like a lukewarm response and uh, sometimes I feel like some of the institutions in Baltimore just um, I don't know aren't ready to accept new media or digital media the way that um, we've accepted the, the traditional media or in, as far as digital media, like um, uh, film or, or music or something like that, just like depending on how mm -hmm. it's made, you know what I mean? Um, do you think FOPA will ever develop arts programming specifically for new media or podcasting? Yeah, <laughs> I say we're open. We're open to it um, for sure. We're open to a lot of things right now. And have you, I'll, I'll ask you this, have you ever applied for grant funding specifically to support your work? I have a few times. I don't think I have through BOPA though. I'd say you should, you, you absolutely should. Um, I was just talking to, oh, specifically I'll stick to you. Um, we're, we're definitely open to it and looking at different ways to support artists and art organizations to reach audiences that we're not reaching, um, to have conversations that need to be had and heard over uh, the masses, I would definitely say yes. When I first came on a couple of years ago, our CEO, Donna Jusoy, is extremely is an extremely ambitious woman. And we had a conversation about doing a podcast. Um, we talked about what that would look like for Boba, what it would mean and how it would function. And um, it was just a conversation and an idea, but it's something we've been toying with for a while. But I would absolutely say yes, we're open to it. I met a comedian 
last month I was doing a workshop um, with Motorhouse and I cannot think of his name right now. We were talking about his, his, his form of art. And I asked him if he defined himself as an artist or creative. And he was like, no. And I was like, why not? And he, he was talking about grant funding. He was like, I just don't see myself as that. And I don't think that um, I would get money to do that, but you're an artist. You, you are an artist. This is your form of art. And he was like, I never thought about myself in that way. Um, but I think you're right. Grant funders and institutions are going to be forced to expand their notions and understandings of what it means to be an artist in different platforms. And that's whether it's by choice or by force, it is going to happen. And I, I, I would predict in the next, I would say decade, we're going to see a difference in what institutions are wanting to fund um, and how they're approaching different mediums of art, for sure. I want to talk more about BOPA and um, some of the programming and services that they provide. So for example, there's a virtual series coming up, The Business of uh, Arts Networking. Can you tell me more about that? So The Business of Arts Professional Development Networking Series is a program that um, I designed in 2019. Um, after talking to artists and looking at data that we had received from surveys, we would just try, and as the Arts Council for the city, um, we need to be providing resources and supports for artists. The program is designed to really support emerging artists in the city, a variety of, of various backgrounds and disciplines by giving them a few things. Um, many grants, when possible, when funded, to specifically help them to professionalize um, in their craft. So like if young people need, or not, I shouldn't say young people, if artists need new headshots, need new supplies, or hey, I need new equipment, or I want to copyright this song, but I can't afford the copyright fee. We know those are things that you're not thinking about during the pandemic. <laughs> so we want to help you specifically in the area of your craft, your discipline, your art. That's something we provide. We also provide free masterclasses or sessions on specific content areas. The content area coming up this in uh, next week is going to be the art of finance. So we really are going to be talking to individual artists, anyone trying to um, finance their projects about how to do it, you know, and we go through things from the basics of opening up a bank account, what that means, how does opening up several bank accounts or lack of affect your credit, is that important, you know, all the way to um, planning a budget, an artistic budget for a project when you have no money, what does that look like? And then our last speaker series, we have um, someone coming on, her name is Trevette Willis, she's awesome. She was a producer on um, a film called The 40-Year-Old Version, starring Rada Blank um, on Netflix now, which is absolutely hilarious, amazing, and funny. But she was a producer on that show, and she's talking to artists about independent film, film financing and an artist financing, how to fund your products. So we want to have something for everybody. And the people who benefit the most are people who quite frankly, can't afford the business class, who can't afford the MFA program, who don't have the resources, who might be a little intimidated to go to a seminar. We want to give this information to you for free and in a fashion where you can comfortably ask questions. This is the second installation this year. We're having four. The first one took place in January and it was pretty awesome. The focus of that quarter, uh, marketing and communications. And we had a huge turnout for our events and people just really ask questions like it was really as basic as you know I'm a visual artist doesn't matter what I look like yeah I'm a marginal I, I'm an artist I'm a queer artist you know we had um, Abdul Ali um, shout out to um, Abdul who was on who was talking to um, artists about how to create your own lane you know how to create your own lane sustain and what do you need to do to make it 
if the industry is not going to accept you um, or your or your artistry? How do you define yourself? And what do you need to do? So we're trying to give people information, um, not only that they can use and apply to their everyday practice, but that they, they can really receive and understand who's giving them the information. They can relate to them. So we're really excited to have this series come up. And then the last thing we do, um, since we're not having these large scale events, that was another opportunity where we were able to allow artists to showcase and provide and give supports to individual artists or bands. We are now producing mini concerts for up and coming artists. And Ray the Conjurer, shout out to Ray. Um, she's an artist that we're featuring during this time where we showcase across media, all of our media platforms on April 30th, but we produced um, a highly produced video for her. And it's a mini, a 10 minute concert. And I can't wait for you guys to see what she did. She's so talented, um, so creative. So we're showcasing her. So it's an opportunity. The, the program is designed to do a, a multitude of things to provide resources for artists and creatives, but to also to provide a platform for emerging artists to still showcase their work during a pandemic. That's what the program is intended to do. And it's evolving and unfolding. Like as we come out of the pandemic, will we, will we shift and change the business of arts again? I'm sure, you know? And in Baltimore City, there are tons of organizations who do similar work, who are providing supports and resources for individuals and creatives. We wanna support them too. We wanna put that, you know, pr promote their platforms and um, give them some light and shine as well. So I think that's what, that's the space that BOPA is in now. We know that there are a lot of people out here who are concerned and care about artists and how they're surviving and thriving during this time. We think we can all do it together. So it's a really important program. Everybody can benefit from it. And we're just excited to be doing it during this time. Can you talk about the process somebody in your position has to go through to create a program such as this? Perfect, yeah. So in 20, I came here in 2019 and I think in April, yeah, I came in April, 2019. And we've had, I of course met with a lot of people in the city who, was, who were telling me what they thought Boca was doing well and what we were not. <laughs> and my job during that time was just to listen, to absorb. And I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people about the positioning of BOPA as an arts council. People are still confused about that. There are a lot of folk who still don't know what exactly it is we do, what it means to be the arts council, um, that we are designated, the designated arts council for the city, but we provide these large scale events. Are you a city agency? Are you quasi people? So when I came out, I was really surprised that people did not know um, exactly who we were and what we did. So coupled with all my experiences and the information gathered by my team who work heavily within the Baltimore art scene and communities, getting the information back from them. And then BOPA had a ton of surveys that we already had done from artists and organizations, just asking specific questions about what programs from BOPA that they enjoyed, what you experienced, what was your experience with BOPA and gathering that, it was like, there's a need here, you know? And we need to be, as the Arts Council, this is something we need to be providing Baltimore City for free. This is what we need to be doing. So, and it's not, yeah. So that's that was kind of the impetus of why we designed the program. And this is like this third or fourth iteration of the program because the pandemic shifted and altered everything that we initially planned. Um, but what really kept it going was COVID. And then when COVID hit, we had this, we were in this crazy situation where people were in so much need. And I was able to interface with a lot more artists because BOPA along with um, other Baltimore creatives, you know, in the city, the, a coalition of artists 
we created the Baltimore Emergency Artist Relief Fund. In that process, you know, shout out to all the creators of that, of that fund. But during that process, I was able to really see how people understood the grant writing, grant making process. Yes, you were awarded funds, but you didn't respond because you couldn't fill out W-9 or you were unclear of what information to submit. And these are notable people in the city. So I'm like, people need resources and technical support. Um, and as a granting organization, we need to make sure our language is inclusive and comfortable so everyone feels like they can. So it was a dual thing. It was, I was seeing the needs of the city. I was seeing where we as an institution need to change and to shift a bit. So it was like, okay, how do we revamp this? Whenever we have a program that we're creating, it's never we sit in a room and say, I want to do this. It's always in response to a need from the community or, um, or, or from, organ from grassroots organizations or from individual artists. It's always born out of a response to a need. Listening to all of this, I, I wonder, do you think that Baltimore would uh, do well with something like an artist guild or like a creatives guild? Do you ever think that that would happen or is that what BOPA is trying to do? Well, I, I wouldn't say we're, so we're not, there are specific organizations in Baltimore City specifically who are just designed to advocate for on the policy level for artists and the arts, right? So I think that, I don't think that there's one entity that can do it all is what my position is. Um, I think I'm getting clearer and clearer on our lane and what it is we wanna do. We don't wanna monopolize and do everything. I think, and people, like you just said, we're, we have a relationship with the city, but we are a 501c3 nonprofit. So I think that confuses people too. I think that also causes some um, misunderstanding about how we operate because we're nonprofit, but we have these city perks and relationship because we do things for the city as well. To answer your question, a guild could work. Um, we're not trying to be the one-stop shop for everything. I think there are amazing organizations in Baltimore who are doing amazing things and should continue to do so. Um, I just think that we are positioned uniquely with our relationship with the city to provide the service that we do in this unique way. It doesn't mean that advocacy groups or um, other organizations should not exist and we all do it all. I love the fact that there are lanes where people are trying to tackle different issues. Now, what I would love to see is for us to all work together um, on different initiatives and groups. Do I think that will happen? I think it's gonna take some more time. I think for a myriad of reasons, that's not the case right now, <laughs> but I do think that it can happen and it will happen um, on all fronts. So we're gonna start wrapping up here. Uh, and these are questions that I always ask all of my guests. Uh, first, what's coming up next for BOPA, as well as what is coming up next for you personally, mm -hmm. and then, how can people learn more about BOPA and its programming or learn more about you? So for BOPA, we have a ton of stuff coming up. The farmer's market is still going on right now. If you have not gone out on Sundays um, under the JFX, please check it out. It is amazing, awesome experience. So please check that out. Um, we have the screenwriters competition coming up. Please check out our website um, for more information about that. That's in May. Uh, we have the business of arts programming that's coming up at the end of April. Um, on the grant side, Communities Thrive. It's a new grant offering for organizations um, for project grants. You can apply and be awarded $5,000 or $10,000 for the next fiscal year. So starting in July, all the way to the next June. So that's really exciting offering we have. Um, that's brand spanking new. And then we're also getting ready for um, 
just planning for upcoming fall events. But those are the, the hot things that are happening right now um, at BOPA. Um, and we're excited about all of those things. So check out our website at www.promotionandarts.org. Um, look us up under the Arts Council tab specifically to see all that we have going on. You can also be a part of our newsletter to get information and the latest updates um, on what's happening. Um, that's the way you can check out anything happening BOPA related, whether it's Arts Council specific or if it's just BOPA wide, because we are the Arts Council, the Event Center, the Film Office for the city of Baltimore. So we have a lot, we have a lot going on. So check us out. Personally, I've been working on a, a, a film, actually. I've been working on a film for quite some time, a, a, a screenplay that I'm going to actually eventually shoot myself and, and do it. And stay tuned is all I can say. <laughs> it, it deals with the social injustice um, that's happening now. I've been working on it for quite some time, but I'm nearing the end of my first draft. And yeah, I'm just very excited about it. And I'm also working in collaboration with other partners. Um, I have some folk who are producing web series. I'm consulting on that. But um, for me personally, no, I don't, I'm not, I'm so not, I need to get more social media savvy. I just got an Instagram like maybe a month ago and I have like three friends. <laughs> if you call them friends on Instagram, I don't even know. And a Facebook, but I like to keep the noise away from me. It's a lot of noise with social media. And I love the fact that I can keep my world kind of quiet, but I'm not sure how much longer I'll be able to totally stay off the kind of off the grid. But um, you can hit me up my work email <laughs> if you want to talk about projects. Um, jdowns at promotionandarts.org. Um, but yeah, just stay tuned. Well, I want to thank you so much for this opportunity. Jackie, is it okay thank you. Jackie? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. This was, this was great. This was a great conversation. I appreciate you having me on and just um, talking. This felt good. This was fun. You're good. You're good. Uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you make your guests feel very comfortable. Good job. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.